y'all. Welcome to the Marty Smith's America podcast. This is volume 54 and holy smokes, I get to talk to a legend. Anybody who knows anything about me knows well my appreciation for 90s era country music. Guys like Travis Tritt, Brooks and Dunn, Sammy Kershaw, Joe Diffie, on and on. All those guys are the soundtrack of my youth. And we have the tremendous opportunity to spend time with another one of those gentlemen, Leroy Parnell. And I couldn't wait for this. When Travis got him booked, I was giddy. I mean, I couldn't wipe the smile off my face. And you just never know how it's going to go. It wound up being so insightful. His storytelling, his relationships. He talks about Willie Nelson and Willie's insight and impact on his life. He talks about someone who's basically family to him, arguably the greatest songwriter that ever breathed, a guy named Merle Haggard. I can't wait for y'all to hear this. It's just phenomenal. And uh, we just finished the interview a bit ago, and I have not stopped smiling since it started. So I'm so appreciative of Leroy, and it's wonderful to hear his thoughts on Nashville, too. Uh, I found that to be very insightful. You guys will, too. Now, I know that you guys understand that hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is, in fact, simple, fast, and smart, Travis. It's a place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. And you know where that place is, Travis? ZipRecruiter. It would be ZipRecruiter. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash Marty. ZipRecruiter sends your job to more than 100 of the web's leading job boards, and they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications pile in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in the first day, the very first day. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That is absolutely free at this address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Marty. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash M-A-R-T-Y, ZipRecruiter.com slash Marty. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And speaking of things that are smart, I feel so much more educated having gotten to have this conversation with Leroy Parnell. You guys don't understand how much I study country music history and how passionately I consume everything that I can about the country music icons of yesteryear. And certainly the modern guys too, but uh, the yesteryear guys have biographies written about them. Uh, I, I, I read Willie Nelson's latest book recently. I've read every book there is on Waylon. I've read books on Chris. I've read every book I can find on Johnny Cash. On and on. These guys fascinate me. The way they lived, the art they produced fascinates me. The book I'm reading right now is awesome. It's called This Wheel's on Fire. It's about the band. It's Levon Helm's book, and he dives deep into how the band was formed, what it was like to play with Ronnie Hawkins and be, you know, be a member of the Hawks, 
and how all that transpired, how they wound up all the way through the last waltz. Speaking of the last waltz, I have some homework for you guys. Before we get to Leroy, I have some homework. I want you all to pull out your pen and your paper and write this down. The last waltz. All right. This is 1978. It is Martin Scorsese was the director of this film. It's, this was about 17, I think, years after they first joined forces as the Hawks, the kind of the backup band for Ronnie Hawkins. Uh, the band, this is their last show. The Last Waltz is their last show. And it was filmed by Scorsese, and it is absolutely brilliant. I think this homework applies to me, too, since you sent me a photo of it and I responded, never heard of it. <laughs> it's okay, man. You're not alone. But you guys will be so fulfilled by just watching these guys operate together. And I also would would advise you, encourage you to read the uh, This Wheels on Fire, the book I'm reading right now, because it gives you the backstory. Once you watch The Last Waltz and you see those guys sing and play with Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and on and I mean, like I countless amazing artists you will thank me trust me so with all that rambling mess uh y'all are about to hear a fascinating conversation from someone that i've long admired and as you'll hear in a moment was very impactful to me along with many of his contemporaries here is my conversation on marty smith's america with country music star leroy parnell when I was a kid growing up, you know, that kid that knew everything in Southwest Virginia, in Appalachia, getting in his 1985 diarrhea gold Chevy Blazer and driving down the highway and turning on PSK radio out of Pulaski, Virginia. Guys like Travis Tritt, and Brooks and Dunn, and Sammy Kershaw, and all those guys were the soundtrack of my youth. And another guy that's in that same group and in that same magical era of country music is Leroy Parnell and I cannot believe that you're going to be on my on my, co- my podcast to talk to me man thanks for joining us I really appreciate it <laughs> well that's, that's awful I say thank you Marty appreciate that well yeah it was it was a magical time you know Steve Earle called that uh the great integrity scare of the early 90s. Nothing <laughs> 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 like just getting right on in there, huh? Uh, but it That's was. funny. I mean, we were able to get away with just being who we were to some degree, which is in this world of what we hear, I guess, today. And I'm not ragging on anybody. I'm not, because I, I, I take my hat off to anybody who can make a living in this business. But um, to be able to pull... You know, be a be a true artist and, and, and just you're mining within yourself those the things that create what music really is and that's communication and, and when you were driving around southwest Virginia in your diarrhea um, <laughs> how'd you say that? <laughs> diarrhea gold Chevy Blazer, nineteen eighty five brother two door. That's that yes, that did the top come off of it? If you, with it didn't, man, bones, I wish. Yeah. Oh man, those were the, those were hot. I love those things. But anyway, um, I knew that I was not feeling much 
I, I, I when I thought about my girlfriend, or if I thought about my parents, or I thought about the people I was working with, all those things we write songs about, topical things. I wasn't much further away from what you were doing, you know, than anybody else. I was writing, and if it resounded as truth to you, it was because it was your truth, and your truth was my truth. We were kind of all in the same boat. I think that's kind of maybe what we were able to do back then. We were able to, you know, Travis was certainly southeastern, southern rock with a big old dose of country in the middle of it, and we all had our own unique. Ronnie had his, uh, Ronnie had that Oklahoma thing going, and that was coming through, and and of course, my Texas thing was coming through, and the blues was coming through. So, out of all those people, you could you could reach in there and find something you related to, probably. Probably why I was on your eight track tape player list. <laughs> cassette. I, I yeah, had graduated but- to cassette. In fact, I felt like a king when my daddy decided that he would let me spend my Hayfield money on a new <laughs> tape deck. I got Anna, Anna, like a Craco speaker. You remember those, man? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, I sure do. Yeah. Craco speakers. You bet. Yeah. I can't remember if, if, if Eris ever put out any eight tracks. I think I was, I had just about, I think we had gone on to just that, you know, uh, by the time I, my first record came out. There were records before that, you know, back in Texas, but no, very few people ever heard them, you know. Well, I came up here when everything sort sort of changed, uh, and for the for the better, it it, it was kind of open season on uh, anybody who was thinking a little different, and uh, they let us kind of run with the ball for a while, and um, kind of, you know. Uh, at any rate, I'm glad I'm glad that I was able to help you through your 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 dating, and hopefully that did you a little good. <laughs> oh, did you a lot of good. <laughs> That's kind of did me a lot of good. <laughs> why do you think that era in Nashville? Uh, why, why were you guys allowed to do that experimentation and that, and and be able to write and cut and produce and disseminate your own personal passions in in a town that just really doesn't allow that that often for that many <laughs> artists? No, and back then. I mean, because now people can go in their bedrooms and and then send off their their master CD or whatever have it, you know and have a thousand copies printed up. They have a record deal. Well, that wasn't the way it was, as you know. And about I don't know, maybe four or five record deals a year happened in this town, and that was on a fat year. I mean, there was some years there's only one new signing coming out of the five major labels that were here. Really. Oh, yeah. It was very rare. Man, I didn't very know rare. that. No, no, no. It was very rare. And it was a big deal when you got to bring that vinyl home and show it to your folks. You know, I mean, then you had arrived because that they were investing a lot of money. Um, you know, you're talking a million bucks right off the right off the bat. Easy. And uh, so they had a stake in the game and you were in it. And so... It was it was a very it wasn't just throwing up against the wall to see if it stuck. What they saw was that Lyle loved it, and uh, that whole thing that was going on. You know, Texas has always had a fed that national machine in one way, but uh, another, and without going back too far, um, 
the people who were brought before me and the, my class, if you will, uh, were Rodney Crowell and Roseanne Cash. And uh, those, Steve Earl, you know, talking about Steve. Steve was my age, but he came here early. And he was hanging with Rodney and Guy Clark and, and Towns Van Zandt and the people that could not be denied. And, and so because of that, there was, it was kind of open season on Texas singer songwriters. And I know that all those people weren't from Texas, but during that time, there was a lot of signings of things that were left of center. And, um, and I thought this is something we got to pay attention to. Uh, I remember Waylon was telling me when the, when the whole, the, the outlaw thing hit, which would have been about 72, really. All that was already happening in Texas. I mean, Jerry Jeff and Michael Mur- Murphy and Rusty Weir and and Willie had gone back home. And so there was this whole scene. And, and I remember he was, he was imitating this old uh, New York uh, record president. And he, he says, you want... Outlaw, we give you outlaw, you know, and that's really what it was about. That it wasn't. It was all about. It was about dollars and cents. But for us, it was a golden opportunity to reach an audience and touch somebody who just no different, like just like you and me. We're talking right now because of the music, not because of numbers or anything. Because something in that music touched you, helped you through that time in your life, and and then now you look look back. I know I do. Heck, I put on Haggard Records just to feel better. So do I. And I'm going to ask you about him in a minute because it's interesting. Yeah. In study, like, I am voracious in studying all of you guys' lives. And I've, I have I know that you played with Willie and knew Will, uh, know Willie and, and, uh, and Hag and all those guys. And I can't wait to get to you telling me stories about them. But I want to get back to Steve <laughs> Earle just a minute. Because yeah, he's yeah. another one of those guys that my buddies and me, of course, everybody knows Copperhead Road. Everybody in, on the yeah. planet knows that song. But yeah. and I, most people probably know Guitar Town, too. Hillbilly Highway mm-hmm. is one of the greatest songs ever. The Devil's mm-hmm. Right Hand is brilliant. Someday, oh, someday is my town. Someday is my uh-huh. town. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. you, know. you know, I mean, these songs are just <laughs> brilliantly done. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I can't imagine. What's it like being in a room with that dude? Well, you don't get much of a chance to talk. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Steve always has a lot to say, and it's it's usually worth. <laughs> no, I like Steve. He's he's a force to be reckoned with, man. Don't ever underestimate him. He's extremely re- well read. He's extremely self. He's very well educated. All self educated. And when he gets a hold, when he gets a hold of something. He will just he will wear it down to a nub, you know. I think Steve was. Am I right or wrong about this? Wasn't Steve born in Virginia? I could swear that that's true. He was. I, know, but I, I have Google. I, 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 I bet you money that he was born in Virginia. His parents moved to San Antonio when he was very very young, like three. If I'm not, I'm, I could be dreaming that, but I think that's right. Hampton, Virginia. Hampton, Virginia. Yeah, Hampton, that was Virginia. Lisa ch- chiming in there. That's and she sings. Lisa Stewart, who sings with me on the road, and uh, we also sing together in the kitchen too. But uh, <laughs> we, <laughs> but um, she sings someday when we're out touring. She she that's in our set. 
because it's her town too. See, in Louisville, Mississippi. Yeah, drive to the yeah, lake, man. turn back around. That's what you do. That's it, man. That's, <laughs> so it. that's all there is to do. <laughs> that's so cool. What was it like that first time you got to hold your vinyl in your hands for the first time and stare at that piece of art that had been a part of you for so long and now it's real? Um, I remember this not answering your question uh, better than any other way. Somebody asked me, are you excited that your record is on the radio? This is kind of relating to the same thing. And I said, and I, I had to stop and think about it. Because I didn't really feel excited about it. And I, I said, oh, no, I don't feel excited. I feel relieved. I, I knew know? I knew you were going to when, – when, when you started that comment, I knew where you were going. And that's amazing <laughs> to me because I just had this same conversation. You ever heard of a guy named Bob Baffert? He's the super handsome white ha- white-haired guy in horse racing that everybody sees at, like, the Kentucky Derby all the time. Yeah. He just I, said I, the I, same thing to me. He said, I don't yeah, feel – overwhelming joy when i win Mm-mm. i feel relief oh, why God, was yeah. it relief leroy because i expected that i expected that out of me you know my dad instilled that in us kids and i was the oldest boy you can only imagine and he set standards high so he he too he would have told you i don't really i'm not excited about the fact but he lived long enough for my mom and him I got to see one Austin City Limits taping, and then they were both gone real quick, uh, within five weeks of each other. And um, it was, um, I remember, I remember he, he just expected that out of his, his son, and he set, he set the bar pretty high, and, I, you know, that stays with you, I think. But I had children. I had two kids. I, I was, to my oldest, I'm 62, and my oldest is 38 so and then my daughter's 34 so I, I i had at the time when i left for nashville it was the hardest thing i ever did driving up away from austin and a two-year-old daughter who just loved me so much and still does we still love each other very much just just at that age you know it was really really hard but uh my dad had lived long enough to 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 tell me he said listen if you're waiting around for your mother or not go on don't uh, the door is open, and I don't know how much longer it's going to be open. Because my cousin is Robert Earl King, and Robert Earl had come up here to Nashville. And Robert Earl and Lyle had called me one night on the telephone. We talked about this in, in Key West at the Songwriters Festival last week, actually. Um, and he remembered that conversation with he and Lyle calling me. They were, they were, he, Robert had a house on Park Place here in um, – he had rented a house. And he was on one phone and Lyle was on the other phone. And they had decided to call me and talk me into moving to Nashville because I they said, man, they like pay you money up here for <laughs> writing songs. <laughs> Banks will lend you money, you know, to buy a house or a car or it, which was not, it, there wasn't, there was hardly any other place that I knew that you could go to, maybe New York or LA, but they seemed so vast. And I'd already done the New York thing to some degree, and uh, I knew that was not my home. So going back to Austin, it really kind of that was that magical little time that happened in '87. That conversation took place in summer of '87, and and I I spent Christmas at home in '87, and and some I spent New Year's Day in Coleman, Alabama, snowed in 
into a Motel 6 with about $27 in my pocket headed for Nashville. Can I? I'm thinking, what in the hell have I gotten myself into? <laughs> Can I just clarify something? Did you – okay, so first of all, this is revelatory. I didn't know Robert Earl was your cousin, first of all. And second, he did I just hear you right? Robert Earl <laughs> Keene is on one phone and Lyle Lovett's on another phone imploring you to come to Nashville, Tennessee. That's the truth. You can ask either one of them. And I, I didn't know if Robert would have remembered it, but uh, Lisa, you were sit, sitting right in the same room when he admitted to it. Yeah. <laughs> it's his fault. It's all his fault. And that I also is, said, yeah, and I saw you passing through Little Rock going the other way in a U-Haul moving back to Texas. You were you were just trying to get me out of the way in Texas so you could come back and own it, which he did. Better than anybody. I'm real proud of Robert, what he's done. He's and a he, legend, man. He's done a, he's done a fantastic job with the talent God gave him. Wow. What song, what song changed your career? Well, um, probably a little-known song called The Rock. What was the impact of that song? It opened the door for the rest of them. They asked Bob Gibson, the great, greatest baseball, the pitcher of the greatest pitcher of all time, arguably. Sure. They asked Bob Gibson, "What, what was uh, what's the most important pitch that you ever threw?" And he said, "Strike one." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know. But uh, it, it, what I mean by that is that that opened the door for what kind of fool. And Love Without Mercy. Now, Love Without Mercy was close to my heart, and it still is. And I play it every night because that was really more of what I did. Now, The Rock was kind of a Haggard-esque song, and it only went to 36. I had three records go to 36 before we busted the top ten. One was called Crocodile Tears. One was called Family Tree. We had videos on and then The Rock. We had videos on The Rock. We had videos on The Family Tree because video was new back then. And they were hungry for it. So we could, you know, we we basically forced radio's hand to play us because the public started chiming in because they were seeing it on T- CMT or TNN. I don't think there was a CMT in the beginning. I think it was just TNN. So that the rock really up. And it was a good record. If you go back and listen to it, it's on, I think it's on that first album. It could be. I think it's on. No, it might be on the second album. I, I don't remember now, but. There was a lot of radio programmers, and you got to understand that country radio. I mean, country music radio rules the roost. They'll make it. Don't make no mistake about it. Now it's it's lightened up because we have all these other avenues. But you know, if I could talk to young artists who are coming along in their career, I would tell them to make sure that you're successful with 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 music that you don't mind playing for the rest of your life because it will be asked of you and you only get one chance at a first impression. They're going to expect that for the rest of your life. So better like it, better like it. I remember Hag told Willie one time there was a, he said, he said, damn, I'm tired of singing Oki from Muskogee. I've just sung it so many times. I just, I'm just tired of singing it. And Willie said, I'll take it. <laughs> you know, I mean, he, <laughs> <laughs> Willie understood. <laughs> Willie understands all things. Let's just—he's just the grand poobah of all things. He's probably the thirteenth apostle, and we won't know about it till we get to heaven. <laughs> that is fantastic. I just read this huge book on him, man. Like a this definitive Willie Nelson book. 
damn thing yeah. must have been 800 pages. And yeah. I learned so much about him. I was really ignorant to the fa- how much he bounced around, like Portland, Oregon, and, you know, all yeah. over damn Texas. And then yeah. he went to Nashville and hated every second of it. And yeah, that's did. when the outlaw thing you were talking about was born. Well, what's it like to be around him? Well, hazy. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, it's interesting. You know what? He, you know, he told me, I, I don't think I've ever publicly shared this with anybody, but I'll share it with you. I think it's okay. We were doing, you know, in this business and the, when there's, there's so many highs and lows and, and, and it's, it's usually every other day. It's not just like, well, that was a very low year. Sometimes it's that way, or that was a really high year. And you can't always count all that in dollars and cents. As a matter of fact, rarely do they correlate. Um, but I had lost, I don't remember I'd lost my record deal or what was going on at the time, but we had a show with Willie at the, uh, up in Baltimore. There's a, there's these piers up there, and uh, you've been from that neck of the woods. You might know what I'm talking about, but mm-hmm. there's a pier where they have concerts up there in Baltimore. But anyway, we're doing a show, and I'm opening the show for them, and it was pre-show in the afternoon. Buses were parked out there, and I had a football with me, and I was out there by myself just tossing the football up in the air. And, oh, man, I had, you know, the guys in the band were starting to leave because people were – hiring them away from me because you know when the radio stops playing you uh then your bookings get thin and then you can't pay your people and your family i mean it's just it you just can't imagine how when you're ruled by something other than something you can control yourself which is about nothing um life can get pretty uh unwieldy and i i was out there throwing this football up in the air catching it Coming down in 2D lock, God rest his soul, Willie's road manager for all his years, came out and he said, hey, Willie wants to see you. And I didn't feel like talking. And I said, nah. I said, you know, I knew he was on the bus. He said, no, the old man wants to see you and wants to see you. I said, okay. All right. So I went up there, sat down on the bus, and there he was. And, you know, he's just a very wise man. You know that immediately. I mean, he's a thinking person. He's a wise man. And uh, he said, you look like the, a man with the weight of the world on his shoulders out there. Now tell me what's going on. And so I began to go down my laundry list of, you know, well, the labels going to let me go. And, and then if the label lets me go, I'm going to lose my publishing deal, which then I don't know how I'm going to make a living. And, you know, it, just the same old. And that, and I said, in the IRS, and about the time I said IRS, this, his old withered, kind of wrinkled up hand reached over the table and patted my hand. He said, now, don't forget who you're talking to yeah, now. Yeah, I've been there. <laughs> yeah, I've been there. <laughs> and and he stopped me about that. And he said, let, let me tell you, he said, you need to do two things and two things only uh, to be a living, become a living legend. Not everybody can, but you can. And he said, I, I won't, I'm going to give you these two things that you need to do in order to become a living legend. So I'm on the edge of my seat by now because I'm thinking, okay, well, here comes the great wisdom. And he said, number one, keep doing what you're doing. Don't change anything. Don't chase any rainbow ends. Don't, don't be trends or anything. Just keep doing what you're doing. And then we drifted off and started talking about that. 
And about 20 minutes later, I, I remembered, wait, what's the second thing? There's two things. And I said, Willie, what? You said I needed to do two things. You told me one of them. What's the second thing? He said, oh, don't die. You can't be a living <laughs> legend if you're dead. <laughs> uh, <laughs> fundamentals in life, don't die. Yeah, don't die. <laughs> That's Keep amazing. doing what you're doing and don't die. There you go. What about Hank, Seems man? Mm, boy. I, I, he was more like family than he was. Um, and still is, you know, I'm, I'm that way with the, the kids and the band members and that are still living. I, I talk to them and check in on them, but Merle could, this kind of took me under his wing. He always was mad at Nashville. I found out he didn't tell me this. Frank Mall told me this. Frank was his road manager, right hand man for many, many, many minutes. And he said, you know, Hag was always very protective of you. I said, oh, I know. I, I felt that. I felt I felt a kinship with him like no other. And, of course, there was the Bob Wills commonality that we shared, and, and Bob loved him. And, and Bob was like my uncle. As a matter of fact, I referred to him as Uncle Bob. I mean, he, he and my father were friends. I know you from the time they were children. I mean, that's all in the bio. bio but, um Anyway, Merle was kind of just took me. We had a lot in common, and and uh, as human beings, and, and not just musicians, but as human beings. And he said, you know, Frank told me he said Merle always he was always mad at Nashville for not giving you your due. And I said I had no idea he thought that way. He said, oh yeah, he used to go on about it a lot. You know, you find all this stuff out later. But all I knew was that I felt at home when I was with Haggard. I was I was a little nervous when I first got around him. It's funny. I just saw Randy Hauser down in Key West, and he asked me to come sit in with him, and did. The last night I saw Haggard, there was a he was. It was the last time he played the rhyme, and, and of course I went. And uh, uh, afterwards, he said, "Hey, come up to the Hilton. We're gonna." We're going to play some guitars, and uh, he loved to sit around it and play jazz songs. He loved he loved jazz, you know. He loved jazz guitar, and I did too. So we got up there, and then the, there was Randy Hauser up there, and Jamie Johnson, and Jewel, and me, and uh, Hag. And he asked me about my friend Jack Pearson. He said, "You know Jack Pearson?" I said, "No, him. Hell, I raised him. You know, I mean." He, uh, he said, "Well, can you get him on the phone?" It was Mike. 1230 at night and I said he's probably in bed because he goes to bed with the chickens and I said well I called him I said hey Hag wants to talk to you he wants to see you he, uh, he said man it's one o'clock I said did you hear what I said you need <laughs> so he came over and we had a big time we played to about four four or five in the morning and you know really just playing music that's it there wasn't any drinking going on there was nothing like that or there might have been doing that but um we loved music, and Hauser said, you know, he mentioned it to me. Randy's a very sweet person and a hell of an entertainer. Great. I have, I, he's one of the ones I really like these days, new, coming on strong. And Hauser said, you know, he said, being around you guys was like being, y'all look like y'all were in a family reunion. You talked about things that only people who are on the inner circle of their, each other's lives would know. So it was like that. Um, 
but I was intensely impressed. And, you know, he told me that same thing about Flossie, his mother. And uh, I remember uh, we, as a matter of fact, I think we were we were doing Ralph Emery's show back when Ralph Emery had that National Now. Was that the name of it? Uh, yeah, yes, sir. Way long time ago. Anyway, Hag and I were both on. We are the only ones on that night. And uh, and we were cutting up and talking. And, 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 and Ralph Emery had taken a real liking to Merle early on in his career because he liked him because he was an outsider. You know, he'd been in the joint. You know, and pulled himself out of a real bad situation. Now he had a really wonderful mother. Her name was Flossie, and she wrote. That's where Merle got his writing ability was from his mother. And evidently, Merle felt close enough to Emery to share the letters that she had written to Merle over the years. Big stack of letters. Wow. And and he told I didn't get to see the letters, but. Uh, Emery said, your mother was a masterful writer, wasn't she? And she said, as was, and see, mine was too. She was a, she was a, a better writer than I am. Same. My mother was. Um, and um, he said, yeah, you know, he said, uh, he said, was she excited when Fugitive, you know, got on the radio? I said, no, she just expected it. That's what she expected. So maybe the way we raise our kids uh, – and not in a bad way, you understand? It wasn't like, yeah, I expected you to do that. It's, no, of course. Of course you did well. Of course you did. You know? Of course you did. I mean, it's like you instill that in them from a very early age. And as a father, you know, that's my number one job here down here on this earth is being a good father, raising these kids up, right? Because I've got them 38 to 7, and it's, um, you know, to, today... I try to raise those kids to, they, and sometimes they take the bait, and sometimes they don't. But um, I have a better shot with my seven-year-old, I will tell you, than I did with any of the rest of them because I was a better father, I think, a more learned man by the time Jack came along. Um, I mean, I was, what, 55 when he was born. And at the time, I thought, oh, Lord, you know why is this happening to me? Well, I knew why, but um, <laughs> the at this point in my life, why in the world would I be asked to take that on? Because I don't take it lightly. You know, I take it very seriously. It's going to be a job, a hell of a job. And now I know because it centered me. It made me it made me a better human being to be his father and be a good father. I had to change some things in my life, and I did. So we did each other a favor. I know that's probably not answer, answering that particular question, but it might answer no, some other No, it's wonderful, though. My- it's wonderful perspective, and it's perspective that I share. I have 13, 10, and 7. I had a father that was harder than hell on me. Yeah. But uh, now that I have a boy who looks like me and acts like me, I understand why my dad was hard on me. And I lo- I've never heard anybody articulate the expectation of excellence or the expectation of success the way that you just did. Uh, it's oh, so oh. it's so right. That's exactly the way it was for me, too, and it's kind of the way I'm parenting. It's uh, Good it's, for it's, you. You know, you realize, I don't know if it's, it's hitting you this way, but it's like – Little girls tend to just love their daddies, yeah, but little boys time. watch their daddies. And that, that, well was the, 
boy, that, when you realize that, you go, oh, man. So it's all about, like, if you want your kid to eat right, then you eat right. You know, if you don't want him to grow up with coronary artery disease, <laughs> then don't have fried chicken and I've uh I've kept you too long already, brother. I um Oh no, I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. I'm I'm proud that we had a chance to visit my son. We're gonna have to have a part two. I didn't get to so many things that I wanna ask you about. Well, uh, that's my long winded it's it's brilliant though i mean like every that's just it was so insightful all of it is so insightful thank you i appreciate your time so much and we're gonna do this again because i have uh, there's more i need to learn from you brother i appreciate you (laughs) (laughs) thank you well hey listen I, i appreciate you and thanks for the opportunity and do let's do have that part two i'll be happy to anytime anytime mark That interview with Leroy Parnell was brought to you by ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And so much stood out to me during our conversation. But what stood out to me the most was what I just said to Leroy at the end of that. The expectation. That stopped time for me when he said that. No, I wasn't overly excited about holding my own vinyl in my hand because I expected it. It was instilled within me from my father from the time I can remember. And that stopped time for me because that's me. It's so relatable to me that that was the expectation. Now, I will tell you, when my book comes out, I'm probably going to be a little bit, it's going to be very surreal for me to hold that in my hands. But at the same time, I'm not shocked by any stretch of the imagination that I got to write it. I'm humbled that I got to write it. I'm appreciative that I got to write it and tell my story. But I'm not shocked because I always expected I'd do it. Same thing. I just loved him telling these stories with Willie and Haggard. Can you imagine you're getting a call from Leroy? Hey, at 1230 in the morning, hey, Merle wants to see you. No. Get over here. No. And did you hear, what about the names he just said? Yeah, we, we're going over to the Hilton over here, and we're going to bend some guitars. Merle Haggard, Randy Hauser, Jewel, he said, was there. I can't, I would love to be a like fly those, on those, that wall. Just jam sessions. Those guys just playing whatever that comes to them, and, you know, just chilling. A couple of people might have in a beer or two, just, you know, playing the best music. And people would pay thousands of dollars to see one of those people, and just all of them just chilling, hanging out. No doubt. And uh, yeah, one thing I didn't get to ask Leroy about that I will next time, we will have a part two. I, there's so much I wanted to ask him about. And he briefly touched on one of the things I wanted to get into, and that is the songwriter retreats. I know that he goes with all of these phenomenal writers to these songwriter retreats. They just had one in Key West recently. And I wanted to ask him about that. What is the creative energy at those types of events, how many hits have you seen written and seen the light bulb go off either for yourself or for a contemporary, for a peer, when a sentence is stated, an idea is born, a title is derived, and the next thing you know, a hit is written. How do we get the podcast to go down to Key West for this and we could not do a bunch of interviews there? Let's Can we, get, can we do that? That's a very good idea. I think we need to do that. Um but can you imagine though, like just hanging out and like one little chord or one little verse can make a hit that 
the entire world loves. It happens every day. Yeah. It happens every single day. And that's why I'm such a fan and so envious of great songwriters. Their talent is life-changing. Very few things that are free to the consumer can change and or save a life. Music is one of them. And I, um, I marvel at them. I just marvel at them. I envy them so much. And the way that they turn phrases and the passion and the vulnerability with which they produce their craft is something that I would desperately love to have myself. I can't thank Leroy enough. Man, what? I can't wait for the second second round, Travis. We got to make sure we get him on the books so we can do this again. That's what, who else? Chase? Weren't we going to do a second second half with Chase, too? We need too? Chase. I'm working on getting Adrian Peterson back on. We need a part two with him. Jake Peavy, we need a part two with. Man. Uh, yeah, we have a lot of part twos that we need to do. And every one of them are so. Chipper, we could probably throw that one on the list. So th- th- their, their storytelling is so good, and we learn so much, and we learn it in such a unique way. That's one thing about the podcast format that I just love is you can learn in such a unique way here because you don't have to be in soundbite mode. You don't have to speak perfectly. There's no edit required on and on unless one of us cuss or, you know, I misspeak and, and Travis takes care of me. But uh it's just phenomenal to learn from these guys that way. So we'll get Leroy on again for a second round. I'm thrilled that he's into that and – I'm, I want to learn more. We got to, I just, the 90s, man, like the 90s, like all those guys, it's, it's Vince Gill, Travis. I mean, that's, I, I just talked recently about meeting Travis. Travis was in that crazy car wreck. Did you see this? I saw someone tweeted at me, uh, on Saturday after the show about it. And I was, I was shocked to see it. And then, I mean, it's, it's a bummer though. What happened with the other people, but it's a blessing that Travis Tritt's okay. I'm glad that Travis and all his guys are okay. They were in a, there was a car accident down in Myrtle Beach, right, Travis? I think so. I think it was in Myrtle Beach and their tour bus got sideswiped and for, fortunately Travis and, and all of his people are okay. I had some correspondence with him over the weekend, uh, just checking on him to make sure he's cool and he said everybody's good. Uh, but when I got in my blazer, from the time that I was 16 years old, I got a Sanyo tape deck and it had like a bass. You could, you could pump the bass up to tilt and we would put in all of those guys, Travis, Joe Diffie, Sammy Kershaw, on and on and nitty gritty dirt band, all those guys. And it's just, when I hear those songs, it's the premise of Eric's song, Springsteen. When you hear those songs, you are immediately transported, teleported to that time of your life. And it's the beauty of nostalgia and how you felt in that moment. Maybe you got to hold your girlfriend's hand for the first time or you took her to the dance or you and your buddies were down on the river acting like idiots. But you're transported to those moments that are so special. In your mind. They live in that kind of foggy film strip. But I just love it. That era of country music is beautiful. The way that the songs were done, the way they sounded, 
it was this evolution towards something different. And I found it so insightful that Leroy said they were kind of the kind of first guys that came along and were able to take advantage of making the music that they wanted to make. That there was sort of this open canvas for those guys. That's really cool. And he also brought up, and this is, I think Phil Vassar also mentioned it. It was like a reunion where the guys, they hang out more than like, you know, with other singers than singers do nowadays where they're kind of off on their own. Where back then, you know, they just be out at, you know, a concert with 10 other legends just playing and, you know, hanging out. So cool. Just to get to talk to him. That was a time that I will remember being able to hang out for 30 minutes or so with Leroy. And speaking of time, Tiso is the official watch of the NBA. Each one of Tiso's timepieces delivers quality performance and traditional luxury. The graduation season is upon us. So for that graduate in your family, get the NBA fan in your life a Tiso watch. The Tiso Chrono XL is a great watch for those looking for a sporty chronograph with Swiss technology at an unbeatable, unbelievable price. Shop now at US com. I'm still waiting for mine. Speaking of time, normally this is time, maybe for the Hillbilly Hotline, for some ridiculous story that I have to tell. But uh, we don't even need the Hillbilly Hotline today, and you don't need to hear my story, because Travis tells me, he hasn't given up any details yet, I can't wait to hear this, Travis has told me that he did something remarkably stupid this weekend. I am not shocked. The floor is yours, sir. It literally happened this morning, so I'm sitting there, I'm like, I woke up and I'm like, man, my apartment's hot. Like I, I have a, you know, a window unit for my one bedroom apartment. And I'm like, why is my apartment not cooling off? The AC unit was on all night long. It should, it should have been cold. Well, I'm sitting there just watching TV on my couch and then it clicks. I haven't turned the heat off yet, Marty. Oh my Lord. <laughs> <laughs> so I had the thermostat still sitting at, you know, a nice, uh, 70 degrees. And so. It's hard to cool off an apartment when the heat's kicking on every time the AC's trying to cool it off. That is brutal. I hate being hot, man. I can't sleep when it's hot. I woke hot. up sweaty. Like, it was the worst. Yeah, no. Uh-uh. That is no good. In my So, Laney is cold-blooded. All right? Laney can't stand the cold. Most nights, she is wearing, like, a hoodie to bed. All right? So, because I love it so cold. Well, in my hotel rooms, it goes to another plateau. Oh, the hotel is the best. When I'm on the road, I'm not kidding you, dude. It's like 63 degrees. I set it at 63, 64. So I have to bury myself in the covers, create a cocoon, a papoose, so that I can not freeze to death. And I, it's just the best. I sleep so much better that way, man. There's been times where I can't knock it down any lower. The hotel like has settings. But I love it. I, I will 100% agree with you. Sleep so much better when it's cold. But the last night was a struggle because my idiot self didn't turn the heat off. What was the temperature in your apartment? Uh, it was probably like 69, 70, something around there. That's not awful. No, but I mean, it, when you're, not, you're not getting airflow and it's just, oh, yeah, it wasn't good. Well, the worst at two now. So that, so to your point, your AC is fighting with your heater. Yeah. And so it ain't doing a damn thing. It's just having a duel. Yes. Just fighting it. And the, the heating does the whole apartment, but the window units in the living room. So as to, you know, make its way to my bedroom. And so it was fighting and it was not winning. Travis, where'd you go to school? 
uh, The Ohio State University. <laughs> I'm sure the folks at The Ohio State University are very proud of this particular alumnus. That amazing story was brought to you by Tiso Tiso, the official watch of the NBA. Shop at us.tisoshop.com. Oh, man, great job getting us, Leroy. You always do such a good job getting our guests for us. Thank you guys for listening. I hope that you were as intrigued by that and enlightened by that as I was. I just, I'm giddy. I thought it was so cool to hear all those stories and to hear his perspectives and not just about music, but about life at being a dad and his dad's impact on him. That was a, that was a chock full 30 minutes right there. And I loved every second of it. Marty, I want listeners, if they have ideas for who we should have on this podcast, leave it, uh, review the podcast and leave a name in there for who you think should be on in the future. And I will go I guess in and I check. I should say that more. Yeah. Y'all should subscribe, rate, and review. They tell me to say that all the time. You're the worst at and promotion. I'm, I'm, I don't like it. It's just not my thing. Man. But yeah, but, so if you're listening, leave a review and put in there the next person's name that you think we should have on here. And I'll work on getting that person on here. Seriously, y'all tell us. The people that listen to this are the hardcores, man. They're the diehards. So you tell us who you'd like to hear from, and Travis will run them down, or at least do his best to run them down. I uh, I leave that part to him most of the time. Louise, thank you for being crazy enough to let us do this. Dan Lebetard and all that merry band of idiots, uh, I, we are appreciative beyond words. Thank you guys for letting us infiltrate the Levitard and Friends podcast network. It has been invaluable to us and it has made our reach greater. And we're so appreciative of that. Again, thank you guys for listening and thanks so much to our military. We are free. I don't think that we appreciate our freedom and our independence enough. We talked about this with Neil McCoy, speaking of 90 stars in a country format on Saturday on Marty and McGee. We're free. We are free. We're free to walk out our door and go do and be what we want. And that is such an unbelievable blessing. Not everybody around the globe has that blessing. And we have that right because of our military, our men and women in uniform all around this world, defending that freedom and sacrificing for us. Thanks to so much to every one of you guys. That is the Marty Smith's America podcast, volume 54, an amazing one. Thank you guys for listening. We'll try to do better next time around. We'll see you then.